0: Welcome to the Healthy Doctor Podcast, where we host conversations about physician well-being. I'm Dr. Steve Sartori, Director of the Center for Well-Being at the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. At the Center for Well-Being, we help doctors and other healthcare professionals align with God, optimize well-being, and maximize influence. On this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Dan Diamond about Thriving Under Pressure, Dr. Diamond is passionate about equipping people to thrive under pressure. He was the director of the medical triage unit at the New Orleans Convention Center following Hurricane Katrina, led one of the first medical teams into Haiti following their devastating earthquake, and deployed to the Philippines following Typhoon Yolanda. He's been seen on CNN, Anderson Cooper, and Larry King Live. He came home from Katrina with a burning question. Why is it? that some people don't become victims, and what he discovered will challenge you, inspire you, and equip you to thrive. I'm eager to dig in with Dan and learn what he has to say, so let's get started. Well, Dan, thanks for being with us on this episode of The Healthy Doctor. Oh, It is my pleasure.
1: I am really looking forward to spending some time with you today, my friend.
0: Well, thank you. I sure enjoyed meeting you a few months back and uh, all that you had to share there. So I said, I really need to have Dan on this uh, program. So when I met you and listened to you, uh, you were talking about thriving. And I just sort of observed that you seem to be a guy who really is rather eager to sort of dive in, even to a disaster zone. Is that an accurate observation? Oh, you know, I've been doing international
1: disaster medicine my entire career. It goes back to my fourth year of medical school. I've been married and then five days later, my wife and I packed it all up and went to Thailand and worked with Hmong refugees for three months. And once I had the the privilege of that experience, I thought, I I just don't want to limit my practice to one location, but I want to reach out and, and be able to share with people around the world. And then we started moving more and more into disasters. And gosh, I did Hurricane Mitch in Honduras and Pauline in Mexico. And then I ran the medical triage unit at the New Orleans Convention Center, which was by far the craziest thing I've ever done. I was on one of the first teams into Haiti and one of the first teams into the Philippines after their big typhoon. So, yeah, I I love going into that place where the infrastructure is completely destroyed and having the opportunity to rapidly build it back up again. It is incredibly
0: rewarding work. Well, Dan, I would say that most people might not be like that. They might say, well, Dan, go get them, and yeah. I'll give you some money, and God bless you, but not me. So there is something built into you that uh, prompts that.
1: You know, there is, but, I've, but I have found that there's a crossover between the work that I do in the disaster world and, dare I say, the disaster of medicine in its current state today in the United States. You know, that's that's what's really got me thinking after Katrina was that these principles that we use to get work done in disasters are incredibly helpful for people that are trying to survive in medicine right now. And and Katrina was a game changing experience for me. I came back not wanting to know why there were so many victims, because we knew we were going to have a lot of victims. We had 50,000 body bags on pallet. But I wanted to understand why it is that some people don't become victims. And that's worth thinking about. Mm. It was, you know, it was fascinating.
0: So you started thinking about that. I hope you discovered uh, some insights about that. You know, I, I have. And
1: the big question is, can you teach this stuff? Well, first of all, I wanted to learn it for myself because as I was looking around at these people that lost everything, uh, people like uh, Juliet Saucy, who was the director of emergency medical services, lost her homes was living in the back of an ambulance, only had one set of clothes on. She was still working 18 to 20 hour days and, and giving back to her community thinking, I don't know that I'd be like that if I lost everything. Or would I just sit on the curb and cry that I lost my iPhone you know, mm-hmm. and all my contacts and everything's like, oh my gosh. But some people were able to keep their head in the game and it was inspiring it was incredibly inspiring. So yeah, I, I spent time interviewing, reading, thinking, coming up with some of my own ideas on how it is that some of these people are able to keep their head in the game. And it's learnable. It's, mm-hmm. it has changed my life. I've, you know, been through some difficult times over the last few years and I've definitely had the chance to practice what I, I don't want to say preach, but practice
0: what I teach. So you're telling us that this is not just an intrinsic characteristic, but there's something that we can learn here and grow from and actually move into this area.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't say that everybody in, in, you know, in medicine ought to respond to disasters. That's something that takes extra training. And in fact, the World Health Organization has kind of squashed this whole di- idea of, let's put together a team and go to Haiti and we'll help out. And those people just show up and they don't know what to do. They don't know the system. They don't bring their food. They don't bring water filtration. They don't have a place to stay. And they just become more refugees to feed. So I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is that we can take lessons learned from these disasters and apply it to our workplace. And it's incredibly helpful.
0: You know, some of the things that you've learned in this uh, process, and then you said, how do we integrate it with other places or healthcare or you know other domains or environments but you know I, i'm just wondering as far as what you learned some of this seems to be present in a, in a model i saw in your book there's sense of a there's a model there that kind of describes how people work or thrive if i'm not mistaken that model was yeah. pretty helpful for me yeah the four different mindsets yeah would you take a moment to unpack that a little bit sure
1: yeah i mean it all started with an with watching an interview with a, a woman who had lost everything and she had, she was holding her little daughter's hand and the CNN reporter said, tell us what's going on. And the woman leaned in and with, you know, almost foaming at the mouth, anger said, when is George Bush going to bring me my food? And I, and I remember thinking, he's not. George is busy right now. And so I started thinking, what is it that makes up this mindset of the victim? And there's this sense of powerlessness that Julian Rotter wrote about back in the 50s, where he described an external locus of control, that people that are victims believe that power exists external to them and things happen to them. Thrivers, on the other hand, believe that they have the power to make a difference and nobody can take it away. You know, people like Viktor Frankl. Austrian psychiatrist captured by the Nazis spent seven years in the concentration camps. And he says, nobody can take away a right to choose how we're going to respond in any given situation. He described it as the last of human freedoms. But that, that idea of locus of control really only captured part of the mindset of the victim. The other part took me a while, and it was just kind of rubbing at me, you know, watching this, thinking this interview over and over again. The other part had to do with purpose. So she was not yelling at the reporter, when is George Bush going to bring my daughter some food? She was yelling, when is George Bush going to bring me my food? (laughs) And so you can divide this out as when you think about purpose, there are people in the world that are givers and people that are takers. So a victim becomes the powerless taker. It's all about them and they will consume resources they will take. Well, once you start putting something together like that, it automatically goes into a two-by-two grid. So if you have the thriver in the upper right, the powerful giver, the victim in the lower left, the powerless taker, on the lower right is the bystander. The bystander has the heart of a giver and says, oh my gosh, somebody should do something, these poor people. But it never occurs to them that it should be them. It's fascinating. They don't have any story. They don't have any legacy. They don't they have nothing because they don't they never get engaged. They don't get off the sidelines and get into the game. And then the last quadrant is the controller. In the book I called it the manipulator, except nobody will self-identify as a manipulator. So now I describe it as the controller. Hmm. And the controller has this feeling of I have the power and it's all about me. And we've all worked with people like that. I mean, it's easy to digress into labeling entire departments like that, which I don't think is helpful. The, the big, the big breakthrough for me was when I realized that I use all four of these mindsets. These are not four different types of people. There are four different types of mindset. And I'm actually really good at using all four. And after Katrina, we had, it was, we could see bizarre stuff And, and disasters are such a great place to study human behavior because it's so raw. And I remember that you know, there was people that were shooting at the rescue workers, and you know I just slap my forehead and go, "Are you kidding? Are you that dumb that you think that if you shoot at them, they're going to come back and get you next trip? Because we're going to label your building as an active shooter. We're going to stay out of that whole area. Where, you know, it, it's just not going to happen. You're going to spend the rest of your life upon that building, or you have to wait till the water's gone to get rescued. Nobody's going to come. And so I looked at that with this. When I first heard about these things that were going on, I thought, this makes no sense. Why would you do this? And I thought, you know, I would never do that. And then I did a little soul searching. And instead of saying, do you ever shoot bullets at people? I asked myself a little different question. I said, do you ever shoot looks at people? Mm. Do you ever shoot comments at people? Do you ever shoot emails at people? Because you're coming from a place of power. And it's all about you. Mm. Oh, my gosh. You know, I have mean, been married 36 years now. My poor wife. Because there's been plenty of times where I shift into this controller mindset. I make it all about me. And mm. it, it once I drew this out, I couldn't unsee it. It's simple. You've got the victim in the lower left, the thriver in the upper right, the bystander in the lower right, the controller in the upper left. You can't unsee it. And what I found that happened with me was I'd start recognizing when I was in these mindsets that weren't necessarily helpful, and it became uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, it certainly takes uh, something to recognize which mindset you're currently in. That's a major step. Most people don't recognize where they're at. They have no awareness of it at all. They just operate in the normal frame of mind, which is one of those four quadrants, right? But I think you described well that, you know, we all sort of uh, exhibit any of these at any particular point in time and any particular context and certainly when you're talking about this as a doctor i'm sitting here thinking yeah i'm kind of up in that upper left quadrant quite a bit i'm kind of the control guy who tells people what to do and i want them to do it because it serves my needs and my ends and my purposes and you better get about it because i'm the guy in charge here yeah and uh, it doesn't work everywhere (laughs) no it
1: doesn't It, it really doesn't and it divides teams And the other thing that happens, and this this occurred to me a couple of years ago when I was really doing some wrestling with this stuff and trying to figure out burnout. And I looked up the word fulfill. And fulfill comes from the old English word fulfillin. And it's a word that was used to describe the process of loading the supplies on a ship to get ready for a voyage. Well, the thriver's mindset is fulfilling. And we're replenishing our tank all the time so we never go to empty but those other three mindsets the controller uh, victim and bystander are not fulfilling mindsets in fact i would say that they even consume resources Mm. so it's not very long before people deplete their supplies and it's a very short distance between that empty tank and the symptoms of burnout with emotional exhaustion being disconnected from your patients. And then this, gosh, this sad place of questioning whether or not you're even making a difference in the world anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. It seems a little bit paradoxical in some ways that the more you give, the more you give back, that there's energy in caring for people. But the reality is that part of medicine really does give energy. Caring for people and giving of yourself and being compassionate and helping others is really a very positive, emotional, and fulfilling experience.
1: Oh, for sure absolutely and and i have proven this to myself over and over again because mindset's always a choice powerful or powerless giver or taker it's simple and when it, it, the key is recognizing it so when i'm when i'm in the victim or in the controller mindset to recognize that and say wait a minute we got to get back over to the other side i i recently decided that at least in my mind's eye I'm going to redefine the word agape from unconditional love, which is how everybody defines it, to unstoppable love. So if I'm looking with the perspective of the thri- the thriver, the mindset of the thriver, I believe I have the power to make a difference. I'm going to put other people first and I don't care who gets the credit. And to me, that underlying thing that's below that is unstoppable love. Unconditional love kind of sits in a chair and waits for people to come and apologize. Unstoppable love is out pursuing.
0: Mm. Love is such a powerful, powerful force. Oh, it is. Yeah. Well, you say that you can recognize your mindset and kind of move yourself around. I mean, this sounds like a superpower that most of us doctors don't have. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> think about this this um metaphor of a tree. And
1: you've got fruit. And in medicine, we're always measuring each other's fruit. So we've got all kinds of matrices that we have to, to go through to get paid. And, and if you don't do very well, then your supervisor comes and says, man, your fruit is either too small, a little bit bitter, or just outright rotten. And the reason that your fruit is bad is because you're making taking these actions. So you need to change this thing that you're doing so you'll produce better fruit and it makes sense and it's true but it's also the easy place so that's that's what's seen on a tree that's above the ground below the ground well at least partially below the ground are the emotions that i experience because the emotions that i experience drive the actions that i take and then the ultimately the fruit that i produce and boy this was a breakthrough for me i was getting some counseling uh, several years back and struggling with something and the counselor said well maybe that has to do with your emotional response to this, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" It's like just, <laughs> the scales fell off my eyes. Mm-hmm. It, it was like the uh, the label on a fire extinguisher. You know, it says to point at the base of the flame, and the natural tendency is to point at the flames because it seems like that it's so o- overwhelming th- these big flames. But that's not what's burning. It's the thing at the base of the flames. And when I realized that there were emotional things that were going on, I was able to actually get some traction. The emotions drive the actions which produce the fruit, but you can go a layer deeper down into the roots and start looking at what are the, what are the words that I say, the words that I ponder this internal dialogue, because that is what drives the emotions then the actions then the fruit. And you know, it's really funny when I, when I present, you can see the people that are going, well, I don't have an internal dialogue. I'm not schizophrenic. And it's it's kind of fun because then you can say, you know, how many of you just said, I don't have an internal dialogue? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what voice voice was that? So the mindset is at the deepest part, way down to the roots. The mindset drives the words that I ponder, which impact the emotions that I experience, the actions that I take and the fruit that I produce. So becoming... Understanding the mechanics of mindset and the choices involved, I believe that the way to really get traction on this is to start to pay attention to what the internal dialogue is all about. So, you know, the victim's internal dialogue is all about powerlessness, all about them and waiting, hoping somebody else will come and rescue them. And, you know, there's all kinds of secondary gain. I don't want to give that up because I get this from doing that. The controller, actually, what keeps a controller locked in place is fear. You know, it's fear of loss of influence, loss of power, loss of money, loss of status, loss of role. Um, So we get into that, this place where we have to defend our turf. And that internal dialogue is all about fear. The bystanders can be one of two things. It can be doubt. That is, what could I do? I'm just, you know, whatever. I, I could never do anything like that. Or the other thing is bandwidth. It's there are frankly, there are times where you just say, I can't take on one more thing. I'm just going to sit this one out and let these guys play for a while, but that's a choice and hopefully not a choice that happens all the time because there's a time for us to get in the game, but it's, you know, recognizing that and becoming aware of this. I, I listened to, I read a book recently, uh, the listening life by McHugh great book. It's a great book. He talks, the first third of the book is how God listens to us. Mm. You know, that, that God bends down, brings his ear down like a servant and listens to us is fantastic. And then he, then he has a whole section about how do you listen to yourself? And, and then he talked about how do you listen to people that are suffering? You know, we so often, I, mean, I don't know about, about you, but um, so often, uh, I, I want to solve problems. That's what I do for a living. So when somebody comes to me with a song that goes, dun, 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 I feel compelled to go dun, <laughs> and finish the song. Mm-hmm. And he talks about being, being willing to sit with people that are in pain and just listen and be with them in that awkwardness. And it takes some self compassion. To listen to this internal dialogue, McHugh talks about he he sees the internal dialogue like a classroom of seventh graders, not from a schizophrenic perspective. But there's one kid that's trying that's the teacher's pet that's trying to pay attention. There's another kid that's looking out the window. There's some kid that's throwing paper airplanes, and then there's another kid that's thinking, I wonder if I can whack the kid in front of me and put my hand back without getting caught. And then there's the teacher that's going, Come on, would you all come together and learn? And there's all these conversations going on continuously practicing mindfulness has actually been really helpful for me really helpful and it took me about a month of doing it before i was able to really grasp the value of it i mean other than it was relaxing but now it's like instead of being in the in the raft going through the rapids i'm able to sit on the shore and look and go oh wow i'm feeling anxious right now. Or I'm feeling angry right now. I wonder why, what is it? You know, so I'm able to pull out and be an observer of my emotions and an observer of my internal dialogue better than I could before. Mm-hmm. And I just, I use the calm app on my iPhone. I mm-hmm. found it, I found it to be pretty helpful. And yeah. I stayed away from this forever. Cause I was thinking, I don't know, man, as a Christian, whether or not I can do this stuff, I feel comfortable with it. I, you know, I have some Some great times um, meditating, meditating on the Lord, being quiet before him, and just completely shutting down and learning to to back up and observe and and show up with curiosity and self-kindness and compassion. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm certainly reminded, be still and know that I am God. Listen to God and then... God also allows us to have space to listen to ourselves sort of in the perspective of who God is and who he's made us to be and what we're experiencing. And then that equips us and empowers us to do better or somehow be more connected and be willing to be present with others in their suffering or their challenges and not have to always be the solution guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, no, that's great stuff. And I think uh, doctors get trapped where they don't uh, take the time and don't learn the reflective techniques to do a little bit of internal work to say, you know, what's my tree looking like? What's at the root? What are the emotions? What are my beliefs? What's the foundation? What is really going on here Uh, rather than just the words I'm speaking or what I'm feeling? Let's get at this. And that's some deep work. And you've taken the time and the energy to really... Do that for yourself, which has made you more aware and ability to kind of shift your mindset when you find yourself drifting maybe in a, another way
1: yeah, I feel like I have more options now hmm.
0: well many of the many of our colleagues out there don 't feel like they have any options, as you know, they feel stuck, they feel trapped, they feel like they 're a victim or they have to be a controller and whatever. But to move our colleagues into this thriving quadrant. Uh, uh, Dan, what are what are some practical things you can can say about that?
1: You know, I, there's there's an interesting debate that's going on nationally right now, and the and the debate is is the issue that they need to make us more resilient, or is the issue that the system is broken, and it's you know this binary thinking of which is it, and I don't think that's really helpful. I think what we need is both. We need to become more resilient. We're already pretty resilient beasts anyway, because we got through medical school or nurse practitioner school or PA school. I mean, we we have pushed the envelope, pushed ourselves and got here. So we're pretty resilient to begin with, but we can do better. If we just blame the system and expect somebody else to fix it, the Dr. Phil question comes to mind. So how's that working for you? Mm -hmm. I don't want somebody else to fix healthcare. I want to roll my sleeves up and be part of the solution. So we end up with something that works for those of us that are doing the frontline work. And that's going to take me doing the deep work inside to make sure that I'm showing up and actually thinking like a thriver. So when I, when I come to work, I need to show up invested. So, you know, the, the Press Ganey people want us to have this conversation, and Gallup does too, about whether or not you're disengaged or engaged in the workplace. And 85% of the workforce globally is disengaged. Only 15% show up. <laughs> but that reminds me of a conversation I had with a high school kid a couple years ago. And I said, how are you doing in school? And the kid says, oh, I'm doing great. I'm not getting any Fs. Well, did it occur to you you might be facing the wrong direction? How many A's are you getting? And he said, well, I'm not getting any A's either. And, you know, if we move our disengaged people up to being engaged, are we going to pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, we're not getting any F's anymore? Because when you look at the engagement surveys like Ganey and the Gallup Q12, which interestingly has 13 questions in it, um, when you look at those, a lot of the questions have to do with how do you feel when you show up at work? Do you have everything that you need? Do you have a best friend at work? Does your boss give you adequate feedback? I can tell you when I show up at a disaster, like when I showed up in Haiti, I I didn't have what I needed. I didn't have, my, you know, my best friend. My best friend won't go with me anymore because he's got PTSD after Haiti, but he wasn't there at the beginning. He finally came and then that was his last deployment with us. Um, I don't have a boss. I'm trying to figure it out. So there has to be a difference, something more than engagement. And I think that next, next level up is am I invested? Am I willing to roll up my sleeves and do the work? Um, and part, and I break down in, in the, this idea of being invested in three ways. One is am I invested in myself? So do I show up ready to work or do I show up bruised and beat up? So, you know, it's the family doc and he starts asking questions like, hey, are you exercising regularly? Are you eating like you're supposed to? Are you getting up sleep? Are you staying away from drugs and alcohol? Do you have some good buddies that are holding you accountable, that are encouraging you? Do you know your why? Have you spent the time to go back to why you went into this in the first place? So so you show up ready to work. And then am I invested in my team? Do I approach my team and say, I'll do anything I can to help them be successful and I don't care who gets the credit. Am I willing to ask them questions like, hey, what's keeping you guys up at night? And then can I... Can I go one step further and say, am I invested in the teams around me? Can I rally my team to look at this like, hey, we have the power to make a difference. It's not about us. I wonder what we could do to make the lab be successful if we didn't care who got the credit. So as I was writing my book, I thought, I need to go down and talk to the lab. So I went down there and I said, hey, you know, I was wondering, is there like two or three things I could do differently? And they said, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was as if these guys had been talking about it for years. I'm sure they had. And they said, do these three things that would make our lives so much better. So I said, yeah, I could do that. I went upstairs, made the changes. It wasn't even hard stuff. Two weeks later, these guys come upstairs and say, um, man, thanks for doing that. really appreciate it. Is there anything we can do to make your life better? I said, yeah, I got a couple. And who wins? Well, the patients win for sure. Because stuff isn't falling through the cracks. But the lab wins and I win. But it, but it starts with doing this internal work so that I can show up and say, I have the power to make a difference. It's not about me. And then going around to the people on my team and saying, what's keeping you up at night? What can I do to support you? How can I help? And then looking at the teams around us and actually taking this agape, unstoppable love, you can transform the culture of an organization. And it can start with one person.
0: Well, Dan, your energy is contagious and uh, your zeal for what you have learned and understood and even applied is is great. And I hope and pray that you have many more audiences to share this with as well. This word needs to get out. You mentioned a book you had written, but I think I've heard that you're writing another book.
1: Yeah, my first book is Beyond Resilience, Trench-Tested Tools to Thrive Under Pressure, and it's on Amazon. Uh, The other one that I'm working on right now is second string starters. And man, I tell you, I'm so excited to write this second string starters. And I think the the byline is going to be something like hope for those who believe they're not enough. And this goes back to this experience that I had when I was in uh, about 10 years old. And we were so intense about the front yard football league that we posted the rules on the telephone poles in our neighborhood and, uh, it was just, we were intense about this. And I remember lining up with all the guys, Mike Wright, Dan Sloom, and Jack Howard, Mike Armstrong. We were all there. And the two guys that were picking teams were in an argument about which one was going to have to go first. I said, you know, I'm watching these guys, and they're going, no no, 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 you can go first. And the other guy goes, no, wait man! I don't want to go first. I don't want to get diamond at the end. And you know you're bad when they're fighting over who gets who has to go first because they don't want you at the end. And and I mean I, I I couldn't run, I couldn't throw, I couldn't catch, but my heart was there. I really wanted to play well. So I learned how to deal with this pain because that hurt so incredibly bad. I either ran down to the field and dibsed being captain, or I learned to laugh at myself. And if you fast forward a few years, you'll find me in medical school working my way through school as a street mime. No kidding. So, you know, I had taken both of those strategies to avoid that pain and really invested in that. And then, you know, going through medical school thinking, I don't know that I'm really good enough. And the imposter syndrome that I know most of us struggle with of I hope nobody figures out that I really don't have a clue what I'm doing. You know, it's like it is so crippling and and I was telling somebody about this and in my mind's eye, I saw us all lined up again and God was picking teams and he picked me first. And I looked at him, I said, me? And he goes, yeah, Diamond, I can't believe I got you on my team. You know, and he's rubbed me on the head and slapping me on the butt and doing all the FYFL stuff. And I said, but God, I can't run. I can't throw. I can't catch. And he looked at me with these tender eyes and said, I can't believe I got you on my team. I'm so excited for the first time in my life. I could look at those other voices and say, go figure. He sees something that you don't. And I could look at the voice inside and myself and say, go, go figure. He sees something that you don't. And as I've grown older now, now I'm 61. So it's what 51 years since that first experience. I look at this and I think, you know, God actually prefers to work with the second string. And there's tons of examples in the Bible. So you've got Moses, who was a murderer. King David was a runt. I mean, even his dad is like, well, there's David, but seriously, (laughs) he's just the runt. He's out tending sheep. There's Paul, who was stoning Christians. Peter denied Jesus. Mary was a hooker. Matt was a tax collector. And then there's a bunch of stinky fishermen. And and I look at this ragtag group of people and I go, this is incredible that God prefers to use the second string because he loves to confound the wise. The whole world looks at us and goes, really, go figure. That's amazing. You know, so just take Katrina, for example. I'm a small town family practice doc from Bremerton, Washington because people don't even know where Bremerton is. I'm I'm just like a, a small-town family practice doc deploying with Medical Teams International, and I end up running the only functioning medical facility in the entire city of New Orleans during our nation's greatest disaster. I'm not a FEMA doc. I'm not a full-time disaster doc. I'm a family doc. You know, and I remember on Tuesday morning during Katrina thinking, this is amazing. I can't believe this. That God would just pluck me out of Bremerton and stick me in New Orleans in the midst of all these helicopters landing and CNN interviews and all this stuff and thinking, who oh am I God? <laughs> and he smiles. <laughs> I tell you, he prefers the second string. And if you're struggling with the imposter syndrome, this is the cure. God has already walked backstage. He knows who we really are. He knows that I can't run, throw, or catch, but he still picks me anyway, and he delights in doing it. And my response back is, no way. I get to go in the game? Seriously, this is awesome. This is incredible.
0: Thanks, Coach. Yeah, the unstoppable love of God that trumps all of those uh You know, things we think about and the conversation in our head that says we're not enough. And of course we're not enough, but God says we are enough. And that truth, that truth should really drive us. And the principles that the giving gives back, you know, this is all biblical principles that say when we give, we actually receive. And so, Dan, thank you for sharing so many of the things you've learned, the principles, even some of your little 10 year old uh, memories uh, thanks for all uh, of that uh, yeah. I, I really appreciate it and uh, I just trust that God's going to continue to help you talk about these things and, and help influence others in our troubled profession of healthcare thanks a bunch oh it's been my pleasure thanks for having me I hope you learned a few things with our conversation, as I did, thinking about the terms unstoppable love or investment or the listening life. If you want to find out more, remember to visit Dan's website, dandiamondmd.com, or pick up a copy of his book, Beyond Resilience, or look for his next book to be published in the future, Second String Starters. If you're looking to manage or prevent burnout, navigate change or transition or grow your leadership skills, contact the CMDA Life and Leadership Coaching Ministry by visiting cmda.org slash coaching or email coaching at cmda.org. I invite you to join us in St. Louis for a well-being retreat weekend, August 16 through August 18. You will experience uplifting worship educational presentations, small group interactions, and time for personal meditation and prayer. Visit cmda.org for more information. If you need a speaker for your meeting or event, or you're interested in hosting a well-being retreat, you can email wellbeing at cmda.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Healthy Doctor podcast. Tune in again next month, and until then, care for yourself. While you care for others,
1: this podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.